Thank you for downloading this episode of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast, where this week we've been chatting to Michael Graney and talking about his writing, what he looks for in a good story, and we may have mentioned just briefly some reference to Doctor Who. It wasn't briefly. It wasn't briefly. We are just one week away from the Brighton Fringe, and there are many, many shows for you to get tickets for, but since this is the Cast Iron Theatre podcast, it falls upon us to mention our own show, Model Organisms, written by Michelle Donkin. Yay! And starring Chelsea newton Mounty. Yay! And directed by myself. Yay! That opens on Thursday, May the 4th, for 7pm, and you can get your tickets from the Brighton Fringe website. May the 4th be with you. And you see, this is why you don't chat so much on the podcast. In other local news, the Iron Duke pub, where the Duke Box Theatre is housed, is no longer called the Iron Duke pub. It's now called the Southern Bell, after the iconic train that used to travel from London down to Brighton, and from Brighton up to London, which excites many, many people living in Brighton who would love to know what it's like to get a train from Brighton to London and vice versa. Thanks for listening. Episode 6 of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. Um, lovely so far, but let's see what we can do about that. <laughs> <laughs> Is it too early to mention Doctor Who? Uh, oh, well, look, this episode goes out roughly after uh, Thin Ice, which yeah. is the third. See, we know the individual episode yeah, titles. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're not even going to have to worry about spoilers because we're no. far, at the time of recording, yes. we're, we're far behind. But we probably might mention. Doctor yeah, Who at yeah, some it, point. it is your kind of lucky um, mascot, isn't it, to mention Doctor Who at some point during the podcast? It is. So you've been listening? I have. Yeah. I've listened to all. It's been my uh, shaving companion. Hello. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in the bathroom, put the iPhone Obviously, on, yes. and uh, just listen to it in installments. Oh, I see, because when I googled shaving companion, it, it came up with something completely different. Yes, that's probably a site you don't really want to pay too much attention to. No, no, no. Um, uh, so we're in the middle of um, we're in the middle of um, April. Um, we're hunting towards we're heading towards the Brighton Fringe. Loads of stuff going on there, and indeed, loads of shows are being um, announced daily for the Edinburgh Fringe. We're going to start talking about the Edinburgh Fringe increasingly as we go on. Have you had a chance to look at the uh, the Brighton Fringe brochure yet? I haven't. I'm looking covetously at your copy, which is on the table by the side yeah. of us. Um, uh, really kind of my time's bit taken up at the moment yes, yes. um having um just had a baby who is five weeks old today fantastic oh happy but uh, weekday birthday um, month 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 yeah. day month and, a, and two weeks day yeah something like that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so you're what you're going to be teaching about maths and all manner of things well uh, well she's um uh at the risk of playing the proud parent too much uh yeah. it's she's just beginning to olivia yeah. she's just beginning to um become aware of her environment she actually will look if, at the tv um and very much focuses on you when you're talking to her and, and yeah. can differentiate between my wife and myself yeah so speaking uh, for myself i'm only just becoming aware of my environment <laughs> and uh, if you put the tv on i can focus on that um but we haven't mentioned the vital thing which it which is your name 
Hello. Um, uh, <laughs> I know that you downloading this or listening to this on iTunes will have seen your name on the blurb, but um, I think just for for the the state of uh, properness, we should actually introduce you. So you're, you're Mike Grainy. Is it Michael Grainy or Mike Grainy? Um, for professional purposes, it's uh, Michael Grainy. But let's talk about that. Literally, in uh, in terms of when you're writing, uh, is is that the name that you put put on the scripts? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, simply because it takes up more room. <laughs> is it, you know, will we get into more than a word count when it becomes a literal character <laughs> count? It, uh, though, is uh, I've I've confused the issue over the years by going um, by the name Mike and Michael depending on my whims at the time. So there's groups of people that know me as Michael, there's yeah. groups of people that know me exclusively as Mike, but certainly for... Um, is it for... Mike the guitarist? Is that what it is? No, I've never learned a musical instrument. Have you not? No. Were you never in a band? No, I wasn't. I've got photos that look like I was in a band. I wasn't going to say, but yeah, you've got photos that look like you're in a band. Yeah, uh, but no, we, 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 it was, it's the same thing as having a biker's jacket, but not having a bike. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, so it's no, it's I, we, I, we, when I was a teenager, yeah, um, we were going to, a few of my closest friends were going to form a band. Oh, we We've, all were, we all were. We even had a name. What was your name? Talon's Wing. Talon's Wing. Yeah. Oh, so it's all a bit um, Blood and Satan's Claw type of thing. Well, yeah, but with a twinkle in the eye. <laughs> Which is the best way to do Blood and Satan's Claw. Cool. Um, but, uh, but no, it never happened. My my friends actually did um, take musical lessons. I meant to catch them up, yeah. and it, it never happened. But we had the look, yeah, which yeah. is half the battle, I think. And did they become insurance brokers or um, businessmen? Business, yeah, they all businessmen, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they and they they live in um, in America. Say hello to Ash and Steesh if they're, they're possibly listening, because yeah. they'll probably say, "Hey, look, I'm on the podcast." You're on a podcast. Everyone's doing a podcast now. Yeah, I know. Indeed, we are cast iron theatre podcast. Uh, well, as I say, we're on our sixth episode. That, that's the, we've not quite broken double figures yet, but we're well on our way. Um, I am number six. You are number six. Yes, you, you have the number of the beast. Yes, that, that seems appropriate. Um, so, welcome. Um, we wanted to chat to you about um, the fact that you are a writer. What sort of writer are you? And I'm aware that's a double-barreled question in terms of literally what do you write and the sort of writer that you are when you do get yourself behind the desk. That's a very interesting question. <laughs> he says, thinking for time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm the. I think I can only answer that really by saying the sort of stories that interest me. Therefore, yeah, uh, or, or that I'm drawn to. Not not the only things I'm interested in would be. The ordinary man in extraordinary circumstances. Yes, um, but I suppose there's an argument for that being all forms of drama, really. There is. I mean, I know that that's been applied a lot to um, Stephen King in terms of if you take somebody who you is an everyman and then place them in an extraordinary, ridiculous circumstance, and that's uh, an interesting way to look at things. But something like I don't know Hamlet or Macbeth, they are not ordinary men no. uh, or you know ordinary characters. So. I think it's not as ubiquitous as we sometimes think it is. No, I mean, um, um, I've written two full-length plays. Uh, one of them is about Mussolini called Il Duce, and he certainly wasn't an ordinary man. Yes. I, I guess it's whatever hits your particular radar, and you think as a concept or a, a, as an idea, or even, um, in, indeed, the foundation of, of um, Il Duce was... Uh, watching a documentary um, about him 
and there was one particular aspect of his of his life towards the end of his life that I went oh my goodness there's a there's a story there yeah yeah and uh, just went from there but uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure you can probably uh, um, add to this as well that the problem when you're dealing with real historical events means you have to do research yes and um it's a lot easier just to make stuff up it is but i think sometimes you can you can bridge the gap and go uh, and fill in what you're trying to say with something that might be invented but you might combine four different historical characters into one mm, uh, mm. character for your purposes I remember though when I was doing my research for um, Year About Summer, um, mm. reading a book called uh, Romantic Outlaws, um, every single page had a story like that. I went, oh, that's a play, that's mm. a story, that's a film. So it can be, get overwhelming, you can get distracted by the shiny new thing. Mm. There, well, there is, there's also, a, you know, I think somebody called Ho- Hollywood Realism, which is, yeah. you, especially, say, take the Romans, when you the Roman Empire is portrayed theatrically or or dramatically rather that it doesn't have to be completely historically correct it's just got to feel right and that's based on everybody's uh, memory of all the previous yeah mostly Hollywood blockbusters yes with, that feature Roman characters in it and it's odd it and I Claudius there but even in films like Titanic Titanic has a very weird story beat really that's entirely st- historically accurate in the iceberg hits and then essentially nothing happens for another half an hour mm. because that's the way it would have historically happened mm. you'd have had the uh, collision with the iceberg and then lots of people arguing about whether or not they should stop having canopies mm. that is a bit of a spoiler for the end of titanic though, it is a bit of a, um, a spoiler for the end of titanic you you don't want to get me stuck on transformers you have you any idea what happens to those cars i know it's it's Surely there should be some sort of prevention of cruelty can, so, can, for the audience, I would can, have thought. Can you imagine if you were a driver in one of those cars <laughs> and suddenly um, it would be awful? So one of the other plays that you've written uh, is Fake. Yes. Which it wasn't the full name. No, it, it was um, a proper one-act play in the yeah. sense that it was about the, the length of a half of a full-length play. Sure. Yes, um, for those few people that didn't see it... <laughs> uh, I'm very proud of it actually because I really wanted to break the fourth wall and immersive theatre is actually interesting me more and more as I go on Yeah. Um, and that the audience for the show are actually the audience for a fictional show of a celebrity psychic medium I see yeah and uh, the genesis of the idea for that was, was I was flipping through the um, channels on TV one day and I saw a show of a celebrity psychic medium um, and I was, I got increasingly angry watching it because I could see that this person was just making it up. And when you're dealing with people who've got real grief, you know, that they've obviously got issues with that they need to deal with of losing loved ones. And he was making it up as he went along. And yeah. whether you believe that there, there is an afterlife or and that they can make contact, this person, to me, was clearly not the real deal. And that just inspired me to, to make a show where, you know, you have people in the audience who are actors and the, the medium 
deals with them and well we'll keep a bit mystery then something happens halfway through the story to completely shift the uh, the uh, the tone of the piece so there's a couple of things to, to look at there in terms of uh, you're talking about um the divide between what's happening on the stage and the audience uh being immersive theatre and you've been interested by just changing those boundaries slightly mm. so that it's it's you're becoming less and less interested possibly uh by a lovely little drawing room fist type play where we look end on a, a a prom arch stage and see some events happening on stage for an hour and then lights down yeah i i i was lucky to, enough to see punk Punch Drunk's theatre's production of uh, Sleep No More in New York yes. um, some years ago, and that was incredible. It is, it was half theatre show, half video game. Yeah, that you could actually make choices as an audience member and have a completely different theatrical experience from the person that you went in there with. Sure, yeah, and the strengths of live theatre is that you've got people physically there. Yeah. So if you put them in an environment where you're playing out a scenario, the amazing thing happens, which happens to a, certainly with even with promenade theatre, yeah. is that when you think back to it later, you don't remember it so much as seeing a show, but you remember it as a memory. Yes, an experience. Of, of an experience yeah. you had. I certainly remember that when I saw uh, Fake that because of the way the audience were set up, um, the audience became part of the cast. Even if they weren't literally part mm. of the cast, the, the ticket-paying members of the audience, their reactions, their moments of confusion, mm. I, I could see them from where I was sat, so they became part of the play. Yes, uh, it's, I've even written into before an incident occurs yeah. that um, the actor playing the medium was to choose a... Um, audience member at random and yes. ask him do you know a john who works in insurance yeah and before they can answer the incident happens so i just wanted that that i knew that audience member would think oh my goodness you know yes because chances are they may know a john who works in insurance <laughs> i think we all know a john who works in insurance but you know he's unhappy he's he's been looking yeah. at you know getting a boat somewhere and um mm. uh, you know moving on from his life but yeah. it's, it's you know insurance is a difficult Business, yeah. Well, know, it is. So, I mean, it, to it. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, yeah, we've we've gone off on a bit of a tangent. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is because you were saying this uh, fake came a lot from your reaction to being a bit annoyed by this sort of apparent charlatan mm. uh, on this um, psychic TV show. And we were saying earlier, what sort of writer are you? What sort of um, stories do you tell? Is that important that you you that stories? have to be a response they have to be an opinion it can't be just a lovely thing of oh i've got a great idea for this happens then this happens the end they have to be fueled by your opinion about something or your response to something again a very interesting question because it's actually brought to mind something I, i probably haven't thought of before i think probably my strongest work has been fueled by a response to something so yeah il duce was in response to watching uh um, documentary and, and saying oh my goodness there's a, a whole play in there and also also from a point of anger because I, I was angry yeah. when, I, when I was watching the show and um, so I guess it was a fuel from that but there's other ones which are the you know the almost the cliche of you're sitting in the bath and boink 
it comes uh, a great big guy. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't realise it was that sort of podcast. Uh, I love it when sentences end up in a different place and they begin. <laughs> I meant, and suddenly the germ of an idea forms in your in I've your mind. I've never heard it called heard it called that before. Um, <laughs> or look at look in with his germ of an idea. Oh, oh bless him. Yes. Um, but let's talk. Let's talk about that more in terms of what does inspire. What, what stories have inspired you? What uh, what stories were you inspired by growing up? Uh, well, this is when we come to the obligatory Doctor Who reference. I'm afraid. Is, uh, is it really that? Is, is it that? Is, uh, that, is that the, um, the yes? Touch, the that, that was the thing because um, as I'm now in my early fifties. Yes, I know it's hard to believe. Your um, voice sounds a lot younger. <laughs> it's, no, I know it's wonderful. Growing up. My very first memory of anything really on TV was, in fact, Doctor Who, which would have been 1968, and it would have been a Patrick Troughton story called The Invasion. and Which they're pretty good for the people who... Well, I guess for the people who are fans and people who aren't fans, there's a lot of imagery in there that, that, that works out as a pretty decent first memory of television. Yeah, and, and there's an, actually, without going into the sequence, there was a sequence that I was imprinted in my memory and when decades later I watched the story again yeah um it was actually pretty much how I remembered it but also beyond that when I sort of you know growing up and um John Pertwee was my doctor and um that it was very much unlike anything else on tv and to a certain extent in in children's fiction yeah that, that was available to me at that point and it just inspired my imagination, and yeah. and um, it kickstarted. It. And I'm sure somewhere, probably, probably in, in landfill, <laughs> uh, um, I I wrote lots of stories. I certainly did lots of pictures, um, and that's pretty amazing. Saying I can't really draw, <laughs> and um, and that is what fueled it. And I guess I was especially when I was younger, I was kind of drawn to what now is kind of known as geek culture, but didn't have yeah. a name then. Yeah. Um, so I've always been interested in um, sort of science fiction, horror, fantasy, um, though I must admit on the horror side, I'm increasingly more uh, wimpish about you know, some yeah, of the I stuff I used to watch. It's getting to the point where you go, do I really want to put myself through that for two yeah, hours? No. So when we speak about that show being like nothing else on TV in the 60s and 70s, and indeed most other times, that deserves some underlining because it's true that uh, Doctor Who was never anything like uh, anything else, even if you're not particularly a fan, because mm. I have watched episodes from the 60s and 70s, but I've also watched other TV from yes. the 60s and 70s. And it's a cliche to say it's the little show that could, but it always has ambition. Uh, it always is trying to do something really complex and something quite exciting even if it's got the budget of a shoestring no absolutely i mean and and i think that's the most important thing is that you do have to compare it to what else was actually on air at the time yeah and um it it just really spoke to me and from from the amount of anecdotes from from people who from very very successful writers i certainly wasn't the only one well, nowadays it's essentially been uh, showrun and written and created and indeed starred in by 
people of a similar age who clearly went on that same sort of journey and were inspired in the same way. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you've got Russell T. Davis, Stephen Moffat, and yeah. even Peter Cabaldi. Yeah. And uh, David Tennant was inspired to become an actor because of it. So, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't just me with my fanboy crush. No, but it's also interesting, and it's the one show that, to coin the obvious phrase, can constantly regenerate itself. Sometimes you'll get fanboys who say, that's not typical Doctor Who, but that's a bit of a, a facetious argument. It's, it's uh, if you excuse the pun, a very broad church. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it's been many things, and you can have somebody who is a, would count themselves a fan of a show that likes completely different things to somebody else who is also equally as much as a fan of the show you know um i slightly fell out of love with it in the towards the end of tom baker's era because i want i was then in my sort of mid to late teens i wanted everything to be very dark and gloomy and deep and meaningful which it had somewhat been in the early part of tom's yes it had but um and it, it for me was it was being played for love i can even actually remember at the time almost having an argument with my dad because i wanted to watch buck rogers on itv and he wanted to watch doctor who on bbc one but um <laughs> i i kind of came back just towards um the time that um tom left and i literally i think it was around my a friend's house we turned on and it was one of oh god i'm gonna lose my fanboy credentials here it's the one that's set in um the null space with all the lions that are doing the the warriors gate warriors gate oh, wow. warriors that. gate yes that's it uh, well done you get the badge Thank you. and um i've not even watched the warriors gate jesus oh it's really it is very good it's very strange but there was yeah. one thing i went oh that's interesting yeah. and um well that's the thing isn't it there particularly that late era uh, late tom baker early peter davidson even if you're not quite happy with the execution. Mm. They're not complacent. They are trying new ideas. There's universities that are based on the rules of mathematics. There yeah. are there are really interesting ideas that will make you look up from your newspaper and go, hang on, that's quite a, an interesting concept. Mm. Um, just talking about me for a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of the, the regrets though I had no control over it. I I ended up in a school that had no drama department at all. And I did too. Really? Yeah. Well, um it was not there was no drama department. There was uh it was, it was not an option as a as a lesson. I was in the school play. There was a annual school play. Yeah. Uh but in terms of day-to-day drama or weekly drama, nothing at all. No, well the Absolutely, we didn't even have a school play. Yeah. I, I think the problem was that I, my school, um, which no longer exists, so I can say, which is not too far from this very studio, yeah, uh, it's called Patch and Fawcett Annex, and it was the old. It's always a good sign when your school is called an annex. Yes, I know, um, and um, it was the former um, Brighton Technical School that yeah. um, in the grammar school days, and when it went. Um, comprehensive it became they didn't quite know what to do with it so everything there even down to the equipment had a brilliant um uh, metal work facilities yeah there everything was geared towards technical subjects more than certainly more than um uh, anything sort of creative creative really and it it was also the last gasp of the victorian style of teaching yeah 
and um, I, I mean, I got the cane yeah. about three times, I think. Do you and remember what you got the cane for? Uh, one. Was it being cheeky? Was it being far too intelligent and answering back to your teacher? I was never accused of being far too intelligent <laughs> yeah. at school. Um, once was talking. Once was uh, bunking off. See the old terms; they never yeah. leave you, do they? Yeah. Um, and I can't remember what the last one was. I I think it was not doing a homework twice that yeah. I said I would was going to do and I was given an extension and I still hadn't do it I mean I, academically I was very poor um, to be frank um, I I think part of the problem for me is that the, the style of teaching certainly didn't engage me I did slightly better at college at, um, at technical college as, yeah. as was um, because that more kind of modern style appeal to me yeah or certainly and you had a bit more autonomy over what you were doing yes absolutely and also i in in those days to be frank i um if i wasn't brilliant at something straight away i'd kind of try and ignore it i see and i think what that is 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 more of a kind of fear of failure yes yeah. and I remember, uh, uh, my teachers were not always the most inspiring i didn't really have a john key team no. to stand on my desk but uh, I do remember one, I think it was a creative conversation about a story or, or a play or whatever. Um, and I think I'd written a reasonably decent short story. And I wasn't too sure what to do next. And this teacher said, oh, it's not fear of failure that's stopping you. It's fear of success. If you do this right, then somebody might ask for more of the same. You have to prove that it wasn't a fluke. Yes. Yes. No, that... There may be an element of that with with me as well, but also, uh, um, it was it closed. My school closed down two years after I left. I don't think the two things no, are, no. are unconnected. No. And did you, did you did you just rip up all the asbestos as you left? <laughs> you joke. This is the seventies. <laughs> we probably had it for for lunch. Sure. Um, and um, also the other thing is is it was having come from um both sex um middle school yeah it was uh just boys only uh which is designed to make you pathologically scared of the opposite sex if you go to a single sex school and was that the one element of um, your education that worked <laughs> to a certain degree <laughs> i i I've, i think i've gotten over that just to reasonable yeah. well i'm married with a child and well two children really yeah but yeah. uh um, my my stepdaughter as yeah. well, Silvana Heather. Um, and uh, so uh, yeah, but it it's not a natural um, environment for to be separated. Though I understand, and you may correct me, is that that um, girls academically do better if if they're haven't got boys about i don't know i think the uh the uh the research on that ch changes in flip-flops every couple of years mm. um where we have a we have a teacher in the studio who is very firmly shaking her head <laughs> so i i i i, I am i am well, this is like annie hall yeah. i wish we had a teacher here to yeah. uh, to to prove that i'm wrong well that never happens in real life no um so you weren't particularly inspired to 
do particularly well at school. But yeah. you were but you were writing at that time because you've already said that you were uh, writing uh, and drawing inspired by your favourite TV programme. Well, that was earlier. When we're talking about the teenage years, not an awful lot of much really happened. I um, Again, I think I used to... I think I used to bore my friends because I used to come up with ideas for things. Yeah. And... Um, say, oh, I've got this idea, blah, 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 blah. And they said, brilliant, go, go and write it. Well, here's the thing then, for any writer, your your brilliant, brilliant ideas, did you actually write them? Or did not, they stay not that time. I, the first time I started doing, actually sat down and wrote something, would be in my late teens, yeah. which actually was a Doctor Who script. Yes. Because I thought... Oh, and, and a script, not a story. No, no, it was a script, and I, I had a copy of the Monty Python the Holy Grail script book. So that so basically you knew how a script works. How a script works. Yeah. So I used that as a template, and wrote a story called Legacy of the Elders, which there's there's some nice stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, do you I, still have it? I don't know. It's all handwritten and it was all bound. So I, I don't, I don't even know if I finished episode four. I suddenly got. I knew Nobody where finishes that episode four. I I got I certainly had worked out where all the cliffhangers were going to be. Yeah, and um, it it um it, it was in it was a Peter Davison story because yeah. he was the current Doctor. Yeah. Um. With, but it it was I, I'd look at it now and probably you know cringe slightly. But at the time I I I did have a lot of fun writing it. But I I didn't. Something about me in teenage years, I didn't really have a very good work ethic. Yeah. I really, that's something I, has been a revelation to me as I've gotten older is I'm much more motivated than I thought I am. And, much, yeah. and I think that's probably actually getting into the world of work anyway, yeah. where you don't have the, the, the choice of, oh, shall I write something or should I just watch some telly? you actually have to go and do something. Uh, also, I think there's something, if you are a professional writer, if you are a producer of any kind, then that has an inverse uh, reaction in that, well, nobody's going to be um, punishing you if you don't come up with a script, so you might as well come up with it anyway, yeah. um, because the world isn't, isn't going to lose out if you didn't don't finish your wonderful story. Mm. Uh, what was your first cliffhanger in this um, legacy of the Elgin? Le- Legacy of the Elgars. Uh, the Elgars. Yeah, those Elgar. are musicians. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, I can yeah. remember the one that would have ended episode... It was a four-parter. Yes. So uh, uh, episode three would have been the Doctor realising that things had gotten so out of control that he might have to, in resolving it, he might have to say, sacrifice Earth for the sake of the universe. Oh, did it end on a Zoom shot reaction of somebody's face? Of Peter Davison, yeah. Because yeah. I know that was particularly strong for the Colin Baker era. Yeah, yeah. Something said, Colin's wide eyes, yeah. musical sting, in. Yes, and, and also, the, oh, it's coming back to me now, it was a unit story in the days that they didn't do unit stories Yes, because they, they would have been gone for about 10 years yeah, at that point. Yeah, so it, it, it was... Um, was it was it pre Mordred and Undead? Had that come out at that point? Yes, I th- I think I did it in the lovely long summer, as they all were when you were a kid, <laughs> of uh, nineteen eighty two, and um, it, it was I was sat out sunbathing when sunbathing was still a thing, 
and I used to sit out in my mum's garden um, and pen in pen and paper and, and write yeah. it freehand and uh, go through there. What this is a, a good question to to spring on you. Uh, what was is the finest cliffhanger in transmitted Doctor Who? The first thing that comes to mind is Horror of Fang Rock, where, okay. where the Doctor, um, played by Tom Baker, yeah. realizes in an attempt because it's set in pretty much in the entirety in a lighthouse, yeah. and he realizes that he has, instead of putting the threat, the the alien creature. I've locked outside. it inside. I've locked. He's locked it inside yeah. with the people. Yeah. And for somebody as a character that seems seemingly invulnerable to actually meet, I've really caught this one up. Yeah, I was always very <laughs> fond of. Um, I mean, it's in the somewhat unfashionable era of uh, Doctor Who, but the first two cliffhangers in Remembrance of the Daleks. I think are, are perfectly pitched. I mean, everyone talks about the first time the Daleks go upstairs, which is a good joke. Yes. Um, but I do remember having the response to the second cliffhanger with Ace being surrounded by the Daleks and she's about to, yes. to detonate a bomb. That reaction that you're supposed to get from all uh, cliffhangers, which is how are they going to get out of this one? Yes. And cleverly, it's been, it's the, the get out has been, it's not a cheat. They have spoken about, the get out earlier in the episode mm. and so it's all perfectly pitched i think subconsciously I absorbed all those beats and the setups and the payoffs and you know i've um well, that's good isn't it in terms of if the if especially for a classic doctor who if it's every 25 minutes then as a writer if you're even writing something that's uh, two hours long mm. you're reminded oh i've got to have something interesting happening every 25 minutes or indeed as you get better as a writer every two minutes mm. The only two bits of in, instruction in creative writing I've done is one was in the early '90s in uh, the Portobello Trust um, at Ladbrook Grove in London, and they did a comic script writing yeah. course. I used to go up there from Brighton on a um, Friday night and and do stuff there, and I I learned quite a bit there. Um, I also did a TV script writing course through New Writing South, yeah. which was invaluable and also taught me um, the importance of, of writing the story down before you actually start. So you're not writing. a write by the seat of your pants type writer? Well, by nature I am, yeah. but I've tried to change myself from that because it can be fun, because it can be a voyage of discovery. Yeah. And there's that lovely moment, it's, it's almost a cliche now, is, but it's true, is if you, you've got what, a good head of steam up, you, you're really right, you're um, typing to catch up with your thoughts. Sure. And the, the dialogue, um, the, the characters, characters actually you. do what yeah. they're going to do. Yeah. And, it, and it's wonderful. And, and even when in Il Duce, um, where... Mussolini's um, uh, daughter is f is flirting with the um, the German doctor that's been sent to look after him. Yeah. Um, and I had really I expected more of a, a rocky relationship between the two, and I suddenly got there and went, "Oh my goodness, they get together." Yeah. Right. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. But that's where the characters were telling me where they wanted to go 
that's why they were being so harsh with each other because they're attracted to each other and they're trying to is kind that, of is that how it works well in some cases okay, yes okay. I'll, um, I'll make notes um <laughs> so we're probably not going to be able to avoid talking about it for the rest of the podcast but we should uh do a final acknowledgement of at the time of recording uh, the first episode of the new series has just come out uh, the pilot of Doctor uh, Who of yes. Doctor Who yes, yes. Um, what do you think? I loved it yeah I wholeheartedly loved it um, I've um, I'm a lot of, of people have not particularly enjoyed up to this point yeah. um, the way Peter Capaldi's Doctor's being written and portrayed. Um, I'm one of those that doesn't really have that much of a problem with it. I think they made a creative choice, which they actually made with Colin Baker back in the day. It's it's all very well saying, oh, we're going back to basics, make the Doctor a bit harsh. But the character has developed since then. you, You can introduce him as William Hartnell and have him soften and actually you can uh, retcon it back into the story that he needs the character of the doctor needs human beings to 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 kind of soften him yeah and um i got the feeling in watching the pilot that ah the doctor's back and um also i absolutely adored the character of bill i thought she is exactly what the show needed. It was back to basics, well, and and also even just down to the stuff of him, of uh, when uh, one partner she's she's suspecting there's an intruder in the in the bathroom. Yeah, bringing it kind of down to real real nuts and bolts stuff. It's I kind of it. a Russell T Davis reboot, really. Yes, in the fact that it's it's named for a. a the character is essentially a, a proto companion, um, mm. and Rose, uh, stroke Bill, and that yeah, that she now the companion has a family connection which hasn't happened so much with Clara and other Moffat companions. Mm. Mm. So that's uh, and yeah, Pearl Mackey is is just going to be uh, wonderful for this year and possibly not any longer according to current rumours. Yes, but. According to uh, it's, the moth lies, yes. Um, I had to look over some of our old texts because I'd forgotten where the studio was, yeah. So, and also, I went back a couple of years saying, Oh, look, they found all the Troughton missing yeah, episodes. That didn't happen, didn't it, no. So, the rumor bill is, is exactly that it's the rumor mill, don't believe it until whatever's transmitted, yes. And sometimes, not even then, because it can be rewritten. Indeed, um, I read earlier, um, this week that for. A very short time um, that Liz Sladen was going to be asked to come back for well was asked for to come back for a, a couple of episodes to smooth the transition from Tom Baker yes. to uh, Pete Davidson um, which is understandable uh, uh, but in a narrative sort of a show that's going on for 50 years uh, style would somewhat be a mistake it's a show that can't really even though it's about time travel and we do have returning companions mm. and there may well be returning companions at the end of this year it's not a show that should survive because of its uh, returning companions they should be like a little no. gift for the for the fans but not a way to smooth over the cracks there is the argument that doctor who isn't just a show it's a genre yeah and um 
I subscribe to that to a certain degree. Is is that? Well, it can do whatever the hell it wants, wants but it survives by change. Yeah. And that applies to the characters and all the rest of it. And it's it's the same thing when, you know, certainly if it's a, a doctor you're particularly fond of regenerates. Yeah. And it's you, traumatic. It's traumatic. And then a few seconds later, oh, look, it's the new person. Yeah. And you're away. I remember um, I've recently watched a couple of um, Tenants, David Tennant episodes, and I adore David Tennant. But it's pleasing how dated those episodes already appear because mm. uh, we've moved on we've got we've had two doctors since then and the style the the the, the pacing of it the the writing the fiddly uh, timey wimey bits are completely different now mm. i mean pacing is is actually if, it, if we think about uh, can talk about that in the kind of um wider th- thing there's something i was thinking of the other day is it's a lot of people uh, who who watch the original the so-called classic series yeah. now will say oh the pacing's so slow and all and all the rest of it but is pace has pacing in in certainly televised drama gotten too swift and and to the point of now that you can't really follow it yeah certainly the cutting is very different and it's very difficult now to find a show that can be quite textured and layered which is why uh, on like like netflix programs are a godsend really because there, there are episodes that can take ages to discuss at certain points frustratingly so for some people luke cage was discussed as being quite slow moving mm. uh, but i quite enjoyed how it just demanded you you wait for the story have you have you been watching better call saul no, no, because I haven't even haven't watched been. the entirety or many of um, Breaking Bad. The the pace of, well, I won't put in anything that could be possibly uh, considered a spoiler, but the pace is practically glacial. Yeah. But it's absolutely fine because you've got the foreknowledge of where it's all going. Well, I adore uh, Solar- Solaris for that. Yes, yeah, and, and, and it's sometimes... Because you can you can run up, you you can feel the details, and then having something that moves slow enough so you can appreciate the scenery. Sometimes it's not always about getting to the destination; it's enjoying the journey. So let's bring that back to your writing, because uh, you were talking about sometimes you can you enjoy manipulating the audience reaction in terms of what sort of play it is, mm. if the audience participation of it's um, watching it as a prom arch type play. Um, are you able to put sort of tricks and beats in that you can demand that the audience wait? Or do you feel that uh, you have to always play to the rules? It's difficult. There's no hard and fast rule to it. I think it's to the... De- you've, got, you've got to be a servant to the story foremost. I I don't think of it in those terms. It's simply what's i've got in mind um at the time of of the conception of the idea because i i would imagine i'm not alone in this is when i when i kind of conceive of a story it's very cinematic in my head yeah we we've been speaking about that a lot in the podcast people often talk about they start out from an, an image yes and and that can be also the very the difference between say writing something in prose and yeah, writing something in script form is is the means of translation yeah and um have you ever had an idea 
that you really knew was a good idea, but it just wasn't quite working for you and realised actually the vessel was wrong. It had to be a play rather than a film. Or... I, I haven't actually, not so much. I've got a magnum opus type idea yeah. at the moment, um, which I'm really not going to say anything apart from it's a take on time travel, which I've not seen, certainly not in um, in film or TV uh, media being done before and I'm kind of think not quite sure what format it should be it's certainly not a movie it ideally it would be something like a, a Netflix bingeable series sure. yeah. or or whether it's a comic book series well that's what I was going to say because that's one of your other passions is comic books yes what we we tried vainly for 10 years to call graphic novels yes well it's only graphic novels if they if they put them together and sell them in uh, waterstone so that's oh, I, I, is that the rule is that yeah the, that's yeah, the general okay. rule in it but uh, yes no, no i was um yeah no i mean that's certainly um growing up that was i was rather than Beano or dandy i was reading what in those days were british reprints of marvel um, comic strips from the, uh, well, comic books, sorry, from the 60s. Yes. So in the mid-70s, I was reading the early Spider-Mans, yeah. Fantastic Fours, Avengers that have been, that were published in the sort of early to mid-60s. Yeah, I think about 10 years later, the very first um, Spider-Man comic that I read was a, a reprint of... Um, the day that Gwen Stacy died. That was literally yeah. the very first... Spoiler. Um, yeah. I, I think I think they know. Yeah. And also that's the name of that particular yeah. episode. They do leave it until the end of the... Um... Yeah, I it, it, I read that and it was a shock. It was a bigger shock as, as anything. Because um, comic, comic book characters don't die. Well, no, I mean... Certainly not the, good, not, certainly not the non-powered goodies. You see, and also the difference in those days, which was very much between um say dc and marvel it's marvel it, you could call almost call it soap operish it was elements more in the face underneath the mask yes and that made it much more tangible and that's why i think certainly kids um uh characters like spider-man and the x-men they can empathize with the struggles they go through yeah um, especially x-men because um it's a family it, when, and also the the sense of being different, yeah, and uh, risk of uh, quoting um, Life of Brian, you are all individuals. <laughs> I know. Every... Um, but it it certainly appeals certainly to a lot of teenage angst, yeah, and um, and and you get decent. Um, lovely art and to be quite honest a lot in those days as well it wasn't so much even the you know, I wasn't particularly that interested in the fight sequences so I was always much more interested in the characters and I think that's um, really makes you could have the best most interesting um, narrative in the world yeah. you've got to have interesting characters that people can feel engaged with and from my point of view you I think even the most you've got to have engaging doesn't mean a nice person. No. Or or you um I, I was after, um 
after one of the performed um, rehearsed readings of um, Il Duce, somebody came came up to me and said, well, you, you made Mussolini really uh, sympathetic. I said, no, because I'm, I don't think I made him sympathetic. I made him a person. Yeah. And he had charisma. And that's, he used it to his, his own ends. But yeah, uh, certainly he couldn't have been a genuinely unpleasant person to be with to everybody in his life. No. And it, and also, I mean, one, I'm where we're bouncing around subject matters all the time, a lot. But one of the things was that really interested me is that people saying that they had real problem understanding um, Mussolini's motives. Yeah, and um, he, he effectively he coined the fame the the uh, phrase um, fascism. Yeah, and uh, he was the first fascist dictator and basically hitler ate a lot of of certainly the imagery the goose stepping even the salutes and the the thing is is that you don't you you wouldn't think that um of all people fascists are that good at sharing their iconography no i mean but but the thing is is that he he didn't even believe in it he constructed it as a means to an end and someone like Hitler actually bought into the whole ideology, but he was he was a a very pragmatic character. Yeah. I mean, he shocked. He had the wonderfully titled Council of Fascists, which with no irony at all. Oh, that's a new, like, new romantic band. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and um, it was what the Style Council called yeah, themselves yeah, yeah. originally. Um, but <laughs> we had nice, had well cut uniforms, Italian. Lovely boys. Lovely, lovely, boys. lovely, lovely. But, um, and he actually confounded the Council of Fascists by saying, do you know what, at heart, I'm really an old socialist. And apparently you could hear the drawers dropping around yeah. the table. But I don't think we can these days imagine a, a world leader expounding lots of uh, militant theories that they don't personally believe in but just for personal votes oh i i know it's it's totally unknown but it that as a personality really he wasn't an ideologist and he yeah. was an opportunist and it I, I actually have one of the characters quote it um that in born into a different era he'd just be a, a, a mafiosa yeah his extra thing was that he had delusions of his own intellectualism as well if you were born into the 1920s, what would you be? <laughs> First thing came into my head was a bootlegger, but I'm sure I wouldn't have been. Would I, you have been a good bootlegger? Or would you have been a, a failure? Would you have been caught? I think I probably would have been, it would have been more of a Breaking Bad scenario. I've oh, been trying yeah. to make the best, best, um, yeah, what would you uh, mean whiskey. In? Okay, whiskey. Whiskey you can make. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's one of the things, you know, you, you say, if you had your time again, sure. what would you do? And, um, because I've also done a little tiny bit of performing as well. And yes, I, I, I was going to ask you about that. I think I would, um, if, if I could go back and talk to my 19-year-old self, I'd say, go go into drama school. Because you and I have acted before, uh, together. Yes, we have. Uh, in a play about a, a lonely taxi driver. Yes, we did. And um, yes, that was that was kind of good fun, wasn't it? Yeah. I enjoyed that. It was one of the wonderful cast iron pieces 
which I highly recommend any of the uh, Cast Iron Theatre works. Thank you. Wonderful. Also, something that's really important to point out is you've read your own short stories for us on occasion on our short story nights. Yes. And what can sometimes happen with uh, writers uh, of short fiction or poetry is that we haven't had this problem as yet, uh, I should qualify, but occasionally writers of short fiction don't always make the best readers of their own short fiction. Well, that's definitely not the case for you. You're, you're a very sort of engaging reader to listen to. Uh, oh, thank you. And so it's always a pleasure to... Uh, do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy... I, I do. I really do. Um, it, it's weird, It's a weird thing. I, I don't know if you get this, you know, being a performer and a writer, is that you feel when you concentrate on one more than the other, you start to feel guilty. It's like having two children that you feel you're neglecting the other one. And I'm definitely, I'm definitely at the point at the moment where, um, I'd like to do, um, a little bit more performing, but having a newborn baby is kind of going to put that, that, that's my uh, most important project. Those are two children that you need. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but does it also sometimes happen if you're a writer, of a short story say that do you ever fall into a trap of thinking you're the only one who can perform this with the beats and the nuance that that story deserves no i know i i've never i i that's that's certainly a shortcut because you you know where the point yeah but i i also um i mean you recently read out um um, an exciting career one of my stories which is That's called right. exciting career in advertising and i also put in the joke that one of the characters speaks in a sean connery accent yes but i also put in there that it was slightly off yeah i, I thank the director speaking in the the narrative for that because my uh sean connery accent was indeed off how i've never heard it it was how spectacularly bad yeah it was were you, were you, no, I'm not going to uh, replicate it now, but you know that uh, when Sean is doing his accent for Highlander, yes. it's, <laughs> it was more like that, but as if it had been sieved through a cat. Splendid. Oh. Yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. You've done a lot of your writing for uh, the New Venture Theatre. Uh, yes. Is that ex- ex- almost exclusively or majority? or uh, Majority. Basically, um, I... Uh, joined a writer there was a it wasn't supposed to be a writer's group but uh, Nita um, Sullivan started a group uh, there that eventually became a writer's group yeah and there was also they also have their weekly drama um, classes there and on the Monday nights on the Monday nights yeah, yeah. Uh, which was a bit of a pain because I had to choose between the two I see but, yes but it was decided, hey, why don't we all write scripts for the um, people in the drama classes and we can put uh, put them on in what was called hot shorts. I don't think they do them anymore. They don't know. This is, um, uh, we've managed to not use this phrase yet, so I apologise in advance. This was before my time. Oh, bless. Yeah. And um, so this, I think this was 99. Yeah. um, When I started. And that really kind of kick-started me writing properly really um at for, for stage well in the sense of completing things i see yeah and actually having a finished body of work and i think that was the important thing so if anybody's listening who who wants to to write and um f- feel they're struggling finish it and i'm i know i'm boring um uh, advice from Neil Gaiman but it's the most important thing because frankly a half finished script is is worthless 
and the, also the sense of if you excuse the pun completion yeah and and of accomplishment you get from even finishing a first draft will propel you forward i feel and there is that recognition of recognizing that there is such a thing as a first draft as well that mm. when you finish it it will be lovely and great and mm. fantastic and exciting but it, you'll de- it will deserve another round and a uh, third and a fourth yeah and and that my only other little tip really would be is once you've finished a draft put it aside for a few days yeah. and then you can come back to it with a fresh eye because you you still will be in the mindset when you wrote it you won't maybe not see the the bumpy things yeah. and also um, also speak your dialogue a lot aloud yeah. because what can be on the page um, may look fine actually trying to say it can be re- you, you really get the feel and also that will help with the rhythm well, there's that as well when you're revisiting it that uh, it's so easy just to skim over it. So something that we've spoken about on the podcast a lot and that I know that I have to do is um, physically print it out. So I have a physical copy to mm. scroll over and, and argue with. Uh, can you edit on screen or do you have to print it off? Uh, I can edit on screen. Yeah. Um, I One of the, the, the most wonderful... Um, things of the modern era is the computer um, is word processing basically Um, I've those times I try to do anything in a manual typewriter in the day it's a blank page a physical blank page is incredibly intimidating yeah and um, and also that I'm saying I'm not giving tips but here's another tip is is when you start have a warm-up don't go straight into it just write any old nonsense and get your juices flowing and then into it it is important to be to allow yourself to write not very good work yeah uh, and that's part of the process yeah not don't don't knock yourself out thinking that every word you're going to put on the page is a pearl because and also another old cliche is murder your darlings yeah is is if you get to a point in the story you may have written the most beautiful prose the most beautiful dialogue if it doesn't add to the story it's got to go uh, bringing it back to our love um i love that show again i just read an interview with russell t davis and oh one of the driving forces of that interview was him railing entirely against that of going no keep your darlings put your darlings on stage and he argued for it very well. I think it's good to have a sense of balance of what, why is it, yeah, as you say, why is it on the page if it's mm. not adding to the story, if it's not changing the story, if it's not understanding, deepening your understanding of the characters, then, yeah, they, they get shot in the throat and left by the gutter. But um, Well, to be honest, if it's that good, you're going to use it somewhere else. Because the, sometimes I've combined two story ideas before. Um can't for life and me remember what they were they now, were good though. but they, they were, were good, good they yeah. were very good and and that's the wonderful thing ideas are essentially green you can just put them on the bat boiler yeah. and pull them out when you need them and stick them in if, if if you can find the appropriate spot and ideas are everywhere everyone has the same ideas as you ideas are not not worthless but we've all got ideas it's how you blend them into a story they're they're precious metal yes it, it is and also don't be too wedded to your first thought as well you know it may be only it may seem completely a a concept uh, beautifully conceived yeah but 
you have to play with it and pull it apart. We're just in the back room now going, right, so now we have to do a Doctor Who podcast, but we also have to do a podcast on how to write, you bugger. Um, I know, it's getting, it's getting very Whoish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly, yeah, so we'll, 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 we'll have an entire <laughs> spin-off podcast about Rift. how to get words on the page. Yes. No. We won't. Um, it... it the thing is, you've just got to find what works for you, and and you know some people are, you know, have the luxury of saying, um, of I only work when inspired. Well, that's great, you know. Yeah. If if you get inspired a lot, good for you. Yeah. But um, indeed, I wo- I wrote for one of the cast iron shows, one of your rapid responses. Yeah. And. Th- that is the fastest piece of work I have ever done and also one of the hardest and also ultimately one of the most rewarding was um, the it was um, called Vote For Me, which is seems yes. quite appropriate. Though actually I was thinking, oh, can I resurrect that? And realising, no, the parties aren't so close together now. So they, it doesn't... They, they aren't, no. Uh, so you can't really do... It doesn't... What I was parodying um, in that work is basically the, the symmetry of political um uh, policy and also where it's down to i want to be elected but the point being that uh in minute one you didn't have a script minute mm. two you were you were told oh get the script written for us in the next yeah x amount of time and within a 10 minutes or two hours you had finished a piece of work well i i started i think i think the deadline was five o'clock yeah and i started at 11 yeah and um um amanda my then fiance now my wife um brought the occasional sandwich and um and hug of support and i just sat in the bedroom with laptop on my um on my lap strangely enough and uh just cracked on but the, you it sound it it seemed easier in my mind at eleven o'clock than it certainly than it felt at, at half past three. But that's the thing about finishing the idea, isn't it? Because the great idea is great in, in your head. Yeah. You have to go through the the torture of actually getting the damn thing done. Yeah, and and making it, you know, have the proper beats, have a, a beginning, a middle, and the end. Actually, say something. Actually, be funny. Yeah. Which was the aim of it. I wanted it to be funny. Yeah. And um, then turn up with the scripts, and then ended up because um, it's a two-hander. It was. I was performing. Yeah, with 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 Jeff, wasn't it Jeff Moody? I believe yeah. so. That rings about. Yeah. Yep. So no, that was it's not something I would like to do every week. No, but it it was a really useful. Imagine working for a satire show when you do have to do that sort of thing every I, week. Well, you see, I can when you write comedy, are you able to sit down and think and go, I'm going to write funny stuff? Because for me, I write straight yeah and the comedy kind of creeps in there's a bit of that for me i think some of my comedy comes from um a miscommunication or trying to unpick an idea or taking the bad thing that's happening and making it bigger or more ridiculous and so it begins to spiral out of control when the end game itself is to be funny if i'm asked to uh write a response to what's happening in the government today Often satire is looking at what's ridiculous. And if the thing is ridiculous already, then it's very difficult to just not go, well, I'm just going to repeat exactly what's already happening. That's mm. already sickeningly funny already. So mm. it, is, it can be a challenge. One of the things they say about medical dramas um, is that 
the only thing how you can make it as realistic as you like but you can't in you can't include the gallows humor which they use to get through the day yeah because to the to the viewer listener audience it would just seem totally dispassionate yeah um because but that's what you need to get through the day that's an other example isn't it bizarrely of um having to lie to tell the truth so when you're talking about historical drama but even something like medical drama you mm. have to remove the bit that actually does happen because it doesn't translate so well for the audience and that's that's the other thing isn't it that drama isn't a reflection of life it's it's uh it's it's a fantasy of life really you can't even the sort of mike lee mike lee yeah, yeah mike lee's even though it may be improvised and very real by its very nature it is unrealistic because it can't be realistic well as soon as you put something on screen as soon as you put something on stage there's a heightened reality there yes you know, absolutely it's a force you straight away uh, so let's talk about what's on screen or on stage at the moment is there anything that you are watching that we should really watch um well having a small baby in your <laughs> arm feeding does create a little bit of um um your baby, your baby yes. not into trouting yet. Not into no, well, no. Um, she's she more of a Matt Smith girl, <laughs> aren't they all? Really, <laughs> I believe so. Yes. Um, yes. The studio is nodding to us. Uh, Michelle uh, is nodding at us. Not really. I mean, we've been following stuff series on Netflix. What I thought I'd slightly subvert your, because um, I knew this question was coming up, um, to point uh, people towards something they may not be aware of yeah um even though apparently it's one of the most um renowned foreign films it's a french film called which translates as a man escaped okay and uh, there's terrific spoilers in that title but never mind uh it's set during <laughs> world war ii um in um occupied france yeah and uh it's a resistance fighter who's been captured by the nazis and has been sentenced to death um, what happens to him? I refer you back to the <laughs> earlier spoiler. Um, and um, they, they're using an old civil prison? A, a, a prison. Uh, a non-military. Yeah. Non-military yeah, prison. A civilian. Yeah, civilian yeah. prison. Uh, to hold him in. And again, it goes back to what we were saying about pacing as well. Because one of the reasons I liked it is that basically you spend an awful lot of time with this you as the camera watching yeah. the events unfold in this man's cell, where for some inexplicable reason they have wooden doors rather than metal doors to, sure. uh, to the front of the cell, individual cells. And he's looking at it, realises the door to his cell has been repaired at some point. Therefore, its integrity is compromised. Yeah. So he works out a way gradually night by night whittling away at this door so that he can escape and then realizing what he needs to do to get onto the roof and then connecting from the roof of the prison over the wall and freedom well as much freedom as you can find in occupied france yeah. and what i really love that it it really takes its time with it and you look at this door and you feel you're in the cell with him and you even get to know the grain pattern on the door you know where everything is because each night he has to kind of replace it with kind of a uh, what he's whittled away with a kind of substitute sort of sawdusty type thing and um it's it was black and white film uh subtitled obviously 
and it's i think it was filmed in the 50s but it's called a man escaped i know it's available on artificial eye dvd and i i've never met anybody else who's watched it i i think i learned of it from one of the empire magazine did a hundred foreign films you should watch yes and uh, i've tried to you submitted to that yeah yeah no i did because i i just felt there was you know we're by our being english speaking country not yeah. surprisingly we, you know we take in a lot of american product and i'm not somebody saying oh um, no we shouldn't do but there's an awful lot of stuff out there that's not in the english language no. that i don't want if it's really good i don't want to miss that's that's a, the film that you want more of us to see is there a tv program or uh, another podcast or a book that you're reading um, bu- 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 bum. I've, my podcast um, tastes um, are f- obviously I'd highly recommend this one, um, especially <laughs> this edition. Strangely enough, um, but everyone recommends their own. I know it's terrible, yeah. so self-serving. Yeah. Uh, but um, the obvious ones like the Nerdist, um, yeah. Empire's own one, especially yeah. the spoiler specials they do, where they actually um, uh, talk to film directors after. The film's been out for a little bit, and they can actually get the, or they certainly put it out when they it's. Can been. Get the hood of the yeah, and you actually learn a lot more because the the problem is there's there's, there's a lot of mate- making of material now, quite puff pieces. Um, so this is a bit of a not a misleading question, but I kind of already know the answer in terms of your family dynamic right now. Mm. So I might need to ask you, where did you hang out? in Brighton to write your ideas because it's probably going to be at home now if indeed you ever get a chance to get an idea down on paper at all um, where, where were you hanging out for your coffee and your ideas I wasn't I'm no. one of these people and I've always been the same even when I did have a stab at homework um, I can't have any distraction <laughs> I can't I, I'm amazed at people who can write with music in the background oh, really? because so that won't happen, help the, you at all no because it for two reasons a it's distracting b the rhythm interferes with my kind of internal rhythm sure. certainly for dialogue when I, if i'm writing dialogue that that's the death of so even that. if you're in an angry argumentative scene a bit of white snake isn't going to help you at all no i no. don't know why i said white snake probably motorhead would be more yeah, motorhead, yeah. yeah um or um uh certainly a bit of metallica but uh, certainly um, not namaskuri <laughs> no 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 <laughs> So music isn't isn't helpful. No, to you. it isn't helpful and distractions and I think that's part of my my slightly still latent laziness that oh there's a distraction, I'll do, I'll just I'll distract do and do that instead. So I'm best left to my own devices with the laptop and um and hoping not hoping, but you generate it yourself what I, what I referred to earlier is a good head of steam. Yeah, you, sure. I that's the most fun you can have with your clothes on is yeah. when you're actually racing to catch up with your ideas and you you you're getting it down i mean certainly you shouldn't have your clothes off when you are at a local coffee shop well they do tend to frown on it they do yeah yes um (laughs) yeah but um there was there is a very nice place though um i would recommend that i can't remember the name of it's in ship street yeah and it's got a load of star wars toys hanging from the ceiling Oh, um, is that uh, Marwoods? Marwoods, yeah. yes. And that, I think we may even have... Um, We've hung out there a couple of times, yeah. I think. 
and that's really nice and also that place on london road um well, presuming eds presuming eds, they, yes. so they are related to one another are um, they? they are because um oh, marwood's is uh a, the name of a character from with Nell and i yes um and uh, presuming eds is a is it referred to in a speech in with Nell and i Mm. So it's all about Uncle Monty and the finest wines known to humanity. Mm. Yeah, um, that's great. So, so you, you, you um, interestingly, when you're writing, no distractions. But when you're having coffee, paraphernalia and distractions everywhere. Well, yeah, see, it's sort of, I'm, I'm, if you're a writer, I think you have to be a, 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 a certain amount of people watching is involved. Yeah, you know, because they're gems. So we're talking about finishing your ideas, having an idea and then committing it to paper, mm. having an idea and announcing it. Um, what ideas did you have for, for like a film or a TV program or an invention that you didn't finish and somebody else has become a millionaire with your idea? I don't know if they became a millionaire. No. Uh, they may not have n- never worked again, actually. It was an idea. What horrific idea did you have? It was an idea I had back when I was a teenager. Yeah. And Jaws had come out. Jaws two had come oh, out. You hadn't written Jaws four, have you? No, I I had the idea for Jaws three, which was that there was a. Except my idea was better actually, and much bigger budgeted. I do like the idea of Jaws three. Was it we knew it? Jaws three D being in a seat. That's a natural progression to put in put the shark in a confined space. Yes. No. That was it. It was it was my idea to have a water theme park, sea world type park, where it's it's broken into. Yeah. And because that effectively makes it a a haunted house. Really, it's a confined area. Yes. Haunted house. A genre type story, effectively. Basically, you came up with Jurassic Park with a shark. Jurassic Shark. Yes, but also Michael Crichton reused Westworld for Jurassic Park we anyway. D- we don't talk about the fact that Michael Crichton recycled many of his ideas. No. But yeah, so you, you came up with Jurassic... Um, <laughs> Jurassic <laughs> Jaws. You came up with Jaws 3. Yes. Was it going to be in 3D in your idea? Had that occurred to you? I would have been open to it. It wasn't. It wasn't specifically. It was no. certainly in color, in in uh, seventy millimeter and uh, Dolby six track, as it was then. Yeah. But um, no. So yeah, we. Well, I could spend uh, an entire hour's podcast talking about the relative merits of Damien Omen too, uh, but, but we're not going to. Um, oh. We are. We are uh, horrifically running out of time. Um, but it's been a fantastic to speak to you thank you uh so we, we we spoke about your writing we spoke about the new venture theater we spoke uh, about new families we we spoke a little bit about um a sci-fi show that you may have heard of yeah um and it's been a genuine pleasure um thank you so much mike graney uh we'll chat to you again no doubt i'm trying to think of a more poetical uh way to end the podcast i have been for the last couple of times of Thanks for listening, but I think we're going to go for that. Thank you very much. It's been fun. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast, presented by me, Andrew Allen, edited by Michelle Donkey. Music is Chapstick by Everett Arnold. Find us on Twitter at Cast underscore Iron Acts, on Facebook with Ironclad Cast Iron, or one word, and our website is castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.